The vicious voices of the right are out in full force, and it's time for us to get up and organize against the heartless attacks on our civil rights. Start your morning diving into the headlines and issues that matter to our everyday lives, speaking with changemakers and hearing from you, our listeners. Hear your host, Zerlina Maxwell, break down the top news, push for solutions from officials who represent us, and call out the misinformation and hypocrisy that surrounds us, plus the engaging stories that keep you energized. Get your morning boost of politics, culture, and everything you need to start your day. It's always darkest before the dawn, but the dawn is here. Shining a light on the ruthless forces across the aisle and rising for a brighter future for all of us. This is Mornings with Zerlina. Welcome to Mornings with Zerlina. I'm Zerlina Maxwell. Joining us on the phone is the author of the memoir, Marked for Life. But also, this incredible story has been turned into a television series. And he also is the executive producer of that. Isaac Wright Jr. is here with us. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Good morning. And thank you for having me. So... I, I gave the the listeners just a little bit of a preview um, of your story, but tell us what happened. I mean, y- your memoir is the documentation of how you went from a falsely accused and wrongly accused person sentenced to life in prison to now being a lawyer, an advocate, an author. Um, so take us through the beginning of the journey. I mean, what happened? Well, you know, I was uh, I was a very successful um, producer, uh, manager, uh, not only not only myself, uh, but my wife at the time was also successful. She was in a in a group called the Cover Girls. Mm-hmm. Um, they sold millions of records, and you know, we were we were kind of on top of the world. And you know, this 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 was occurring during the I shouldn't say the height. Uh, but the rollout uh, and intensity of the war on drugs. And at that time, you know, the issue for law enforcement was was two things, uh, make arrests and go after assets. Uh, and so, you know, as a successful businessman, I was, you know, the, the, my, my wealth, and I was young, I was in my 20s. You know, I, I wore my wealth on and my success on my sleeve. I, I didn't really, I was naive about uh, how that can come back to haunt me. Um, I moved in an area where there was a prosecutor uh, who was running the office at the time as a criminal enterprise. Uh, even the detectives, their, their um, business cards for the office was connected to forfeiture. So the more assets they forfeited, the more they had in their expense accounts. Um, you know, people were set up, assets were taken from them, and friends of law enforcement would go to the auctions and purchase the properties. I mean, it was a, it was a, the war on drugs just created um, a lot of corruption within the mm-hmm. system, and I got caught up into that. Uh, and the thing about me getting caught up into that is that it it was conflicting with the primary duty of law enforcement, and specifically the primary duty of prosecutors, which is to see that justice is done. Um, back then, as it still is today, in a lot of respects, it's about conviction. It's about mm-hmm. winning. So, so this is such an incredible, uh, important point that I, I talk a lot about on the show, because in a lot of ways, one of the things I think people need to understand is a lot of times it's not like it is a conspiracy, right? You're describing like 
you know, a whole whole scale corruption in a in a prosecutor's office, um, where people are 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 literally like, you know, getting paid by the criminals and a part of right. they're a part of the criminal enterprise. But there's also scenarios in which prosecutors like are not corrupt that are, they're trying to do their jobs, but their right. motivation, their motivation and, and how to get to that goal of conviction, right. you know, the path, they don't really care what happens along right. the path. It may not be full scale corruption, but, right. you know, they may not know who did it, but they have to say somebody did it. So they'll point to you and they'll come up with evidence to support that to get to the goal, whether... Right you did it or not. I mean, that is what happened to you. So talk a bit about why that goal that is just conviction, that th that shouldn't be the goal. I mean, shouldn't the goal be to find out what happened? The truth isn't, isn't that what in, the goal in, is? In our society, you know, and this is a matter of case law, in our society, the way our system is set up is that it is better for the guilty to go free than an innocent person to spend a day in prison. I mean, it's 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 designed for innocent people not to get caught up into this. But but what happened is power corrupts, yep. and you know the need to grow within an industry, the need to succeed, the need to go from a prosecutor, an assistant prosecutor, to a head prosecutor, to the governor, and maybe the president. The need to do that outweighs everything, and so. One problem with the system is that it fights harder when it's wrong. It does not want to admit its mistakes. And, and what happens is innocent people suffer because of that. Because the issue is you arrested this man, you got to win. Whether you win by taking him to trial and convicting him of something he didn't do or having him plead guilty to something he didn't do, this is about winning. And, and, that's, and, and today it's more of that. Than the, than the massive corruption that was occurring right. in the 80s and 90s. Today, it's more about winning than anything else, but still innocent people are caught up in that. Yeah, it's, it's a, such an important point. And, and I think not often talked enough about, I think that people, I think the average person assumes that someone like you that could be wrongfully convicted and incarcerated for something you didn't do, that it has to be an example like the full-scale corruption that you're talking about right. and it's so important that we understand that it is not that there are a lot of really good people that you'll see at thanksgiving dinner that are prosecutors that you know are trying to do a good job but the way the system is set up and works um they're putting people in prison that may not have done it because their ultimate goal no matter what is winning um and as long Absolutely. as they win they're they're told they're doing a good job Absolutely. And, and in my book, I talk about this. I mean, I don't think there's any more of an honorable job uh, than being a prosecutor. Mm. And, I, and I think that 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 status, uh, that the essence of the job is what makes it so much difficult because it takes a special person uh, to hold that badge of honor uh, and to and to set aside his own, you know, his his own personal beliefs. His, his, the environment uh, which becomes a part of who he is, uh, to set all of those things aside and to just be pure in the pursuit of justice. It's it's an honorable job and it takes a very special person to run it. And if, you know, if you're not cut off to do that, again, innocent people uh, get, get hurt. One of the things I always wanted to ask anybody who is wrongfully convicted of anything is I'm sure initially you believe that this is a this is a mix up. They're going to figure out that I didn't do this because I didn't do this. And somebody's going to clear this up. Right. You're waiting for somebody to come 
fix it, right? Because right. there's been a mistake here, a very big mistake right. that, you know, everybody's going to figure out that, that I didn't do this. Nobody's just going to keep going along with this lie. Right. You know, at what point, though, do you realize you are the one that has to fix it? Well, you know, it came in two stages. So, and, and this is this is this is this is very very important for me to say because it brings out a part of this case um, uh, that is so unique. Uh, most people wouldn't even believe that it happened, but it did. The day I was arrested, uh, and this was the first phase of me understanding the, the the extent of how much trouble I was in. Probably around later on, I was I was in being held all day, and then later to the night, maybe two o'clock in the morning. Um, a police officer and a man with a suit entered, entered the cell area where they were holding me. And I thought it was my attorney. So he came up to the cell, he reached through the bars and I shook his hand. And as I was shaking his hand, he said, my name is prosecutor Nicholas Bissell. I'm the head prosecutor and I'm going to be trying your case personally. So I kind of, when, when that happened, I, I snatched my hand away and I stepped back. I didn't say anything. I just, I just sat down and they looked at me for a second. They took both turned around and left the room. But at that point, I understood even as a layman that a head prosecutor, not an assistant, mm-hmm. the prosecutor, doesn't get out of his bed two o'clock in the morning you know, to go to a guy to let him know that he's going to be trying the case personally. So that was the first stage of me understanding the extent of the trouble that I was in, because for some reason, this was personal to this guy. The next phase, I still thought I had a chance with an attorney. But one attorney after the other, after the other was telling me to take 20 years in prison. I mean, this wasn't even a situation where a few months went by to go over to the discovery and to figure out what the situation was. You know, what right. we're here where the holes are. This is what we could do. Here's our defense strategy. It was none of that. There was a conversation with a prosecutor. They would come and sit with me and they would say, listen, the best I can do for you is 20 years. Take these 20 years for something I didn't do. And they didn't want to even hear that. They didn't want to hear that I was innocent. They just wanted me to plead. It was at that moment it was at that moment when I understood not only how much trouble I was in, but how isolated and alone that I was in my problems in the struggle. You know, it was a devastation that I that's unexplainable when you come to the realization that you're likely going to go to prison for the rest of your life and there's nobody out there that's willing to help. I mean, it it's it's so hard um, for me to even hear you say that because I just I try to put my I'm trying to put myself in that position and try to think about what it would feel like for and I and I know because I, I have a law degree. So I know a lot of prosecutors. I know a lot of federal prosecutors and they actually have a joke like their joke is like, you know, when a federal prosecutor comes in that room with you, um, you know, normally the conversation you have with your public defender is, you know, when you get out of prison, that's how your public defender comes in and talks to you like when you right. get out. Because right. when a federal prosecutor is, you know, having that plea conversation with you, you know, most people in that position take the plea, even if they right. didn't do it, because right. because of so many other factors. So there are a lot of other reasons why um, systemically why this happens. But I mean, do you think people. Do you think people really understand your experience and the isolation that you felt and I mean, really truly understand that it could happen to anyone because that's what I don't think is connecting for people. Most of the time when we talk about the wrongfully convicted, I think people still think that they are different. 
like, oh, that couldn't happen to me because, well, that person must have been doing something at least wrong, maybe on the first level. Maybe not that specific crime, but they were like, you know, maybe they were around criminals and that's why they got caught up in it. I mean, talk about how a bit about how this could happen to anyone. And that's what I think we all need to understand in um, in talking about your story and experience. Absolutely. And and I think you hit something that's extremely important. And, and I and I talk about this in the book, you know, uh, the reason why there's there hasn't been swift um, and absolute change is specifically because of that. It's, it is because that the majority of the population, you know, they, they while they do not like these problems to occur in the system and while they want the best system that we could possibly have, uh, they also believe that this is not something that can happen to them. And what they don't understand is that when it comes between them and the careers of the individuals that's moving through the proper and lawful administration of justice, it's going to be the careers. This is what they don't understand. And the issue of the issue of whether it may or may not affect them personally, uh, it does. It affects society as a whole. Yep. So it, while 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 an individual may have a a certain individual may have it may be highly unlikely that they'll get caught up in the system. Every single person that gets caught up in the system that is innocent, every single person that gets caught up in the system that's getting 20 years and they only probably deserve probation. It affects the general public at large. And, and by design, it affects you and your tax dollars. Yep. Billions and billions of dollars are going to house uh, individuals that should not be in prison. And if they are in prison, they should have been home a long time ago. From people who are doing 30, 40, 50 years for nonviolent crimes to those who are doing life sentences for nonviolent crimes. Uh, and so it is specifically because of that, because of the, the, the innate inability to understand that even if it doesn't affect you directly, it affects you peripherally. And it affects this country and, it, it, and its system as a whole, uh, that, that they don't take a more proactive approach at trying to do something to make changes. It's such an important point. One of the things I wanted to ask you about also is, so you are incarcerated and you have that moment where you realize you're alone, but you also have, you said, a secondary moment, right? And I'm assuming, um, or I want to know, is, is that the moment where you decide you are then going to do something about it and yes. get into the law library and figure out how you can get yourself out of the situation? So take us through that part of the story. So, there were, and there were two phases to that. The first phase is once I understood that I was alone, uh, I knew that at that time I was going to prison. I mean, and, and this is really this is really a fatality because it kills you inside. Mm-hmm. It, it literally, you literally die and you come back to life if you ever do. Because when most people in that situation, when they die, they never come back. And when I say die, I'm talking metaphorically, they, they're never the same person. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and a lot of them lose their minds. Uh, but when I, in, in, in my situation, when I, when I understood I knew I was going to prison and I knew that nobody was going to help me. And so at that point, at that point, the strategy for me was not to keep from going to prison, but the strategy for me was to make sure that if they, when they, when they sent me to prison, that they couldn't keep me. And at that point, I knew that this was something that I had to do by myself. Now I'm a 20 something year old kid. 
The only thing that I've had at this point from an educational standpoint was a high school diploma. I had no formal education in the law. I had no idea what the law was about. But what I didn't understand also at the time when I decided to represent myself is that I had a gift that I knew nothing about. The very first law book I picked up and I read the first paragraph, it felt like I was doing it all my life. Mm. And from that moment, even though I did get convicted at trial, and even though I did get a life sentence, I never stopped growing in my understanding and in my skills. So by the time seven and a half years had went by, I was better than most of the opponents that I came up against. And when I got my last chance to prove my freedom, it was in a it was after my appeals was over with. It was a last stance in the same courtroom that had sentenced me to prison for life. And I got a veteran police officer who at that time, seven and a half years later, was chief of the police academy. I got him on that stand and I turned him around. He broke down and started crying and he confessed to what they did to me. From that point, the case just came crumbling down. I mean, there was more confessions after that. There was lawyers getting on the stand saying, yeah, we had secret deals. Uh, Co-defendants was getting on the stand. Yeah, they gave me a script, the testimony. The prosecutor, he ran, he killed himself in, in, uh, in Las Vegas. Uh, even my trial judge, he went to prison. Uh, and so, you know, it was a it was a, a, a collage of destruction uh, that occurred step by step that ultimately um, led to my release. And then another, you know, seven years pursuing a law degree after I after I, you know, I was released from prison. That's a whole nother story, because then there was nine more years that went by that they investigated me, knowing that I was no, I was so, wrongly convicted. So I had I have that down in my questions because I did see that. And I was like, wait, they held up your bar license for how long? Take us through that uh, piece of this this your your or what what happened afterwards that blocked you was an obstacle in you attaining a law degree and practicing law? Why did they do so that? So this was this was a this was another form and totally different, another form of imprisonment. I'm a free man now. Seven and a half years, it was clear that I was wrongly convicted. It was clear that I was set up. It came from the mouth of a police, a number of different police officers. Uh, um, um, obviously, uh, one, the first one was a floodgate. One of the one of the people uh, that testified was the chief of police who said that the prosecutor was there and was involved in the cover-up. But, you know, I, I'm out. I spend the next seven years. Now. I just spent seven and a half years in prison. I, I spend the next seven years pursuing a law degree four years undergraduate, three years law school. I graduate on time and I pass the bar. When you pass the bar, it usually takes maybe a couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. You get your license. Mm -hmm. If you have something in your background, it may take a couple of months, maybe even six months. Well, I obviously had something in my background because I was convicted of a drug kingpin and sentenced to life in prison. However, it was clear that's the reason why I was home. That's the reason why I was on the street, that I was set up, that I was wrongly convicted. It was clear that it was an entire series of court hearings to make that determination. But still yet, the committee on character didn't take two weeks, didn't take six months. They held me up for nine years on their so-called investigation. And the Supreme Court had to force them to give me the license. And so... There's no real answer for that. So, so, so that I could be crystal clear about it. There's no real answer 
for nine years after a man had just spent seven and a half years in prison wrongfully. He then takes another seven years out of his life to get a law degree. There's no reason that nine years was supposed to pass by before you get a license, but the hope was that something would go wrong in my life and that had, they'd have a reason not to give me the license. Um, but I persevered. I mean, this was a situation that I would have reached from the grave for that license. Mm. You know, if, if it was another 20 years, I, I was I was going to win. I wasn't going to fight and I wasn't going to sue. And, and I'm going to explain to you why. The people that get, and this is what a lot of people don't, uh, doesn't understand, the general public doesn't understand. You don't go to the State Department to get a law license. Right. You don't go to the regular the, the, the regular procedures of, of going to a, a, a licensing agency in the Department of State or in the city to get any a license like that. It is the court that licenses you. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't going to go to war with the very entity that I was going to ask for the license to become an officer of that particular court. So, so the, 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 from a strategic standpoint, the best way for me to have gone at is just to continue to push, to continue to push. And, 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 and this is something also strategic and to find that opening where I knew I was going to get the license. And this is what I did. And I'm going to give her her props because she was incredible. Mm -hmm. There was a Supreme Court justice named Virginia Long. Virginia Long, and, and if anyone doesn't know, Supreme Court is a, just like it's the highest court of the United States, it's also the highest court in most states. Mm -hmm. Virginia Long was a Supreme Court justice for many years. She presided actually over my civil case. And I kept checking, kept checking to see if any of these judges was going to retire. She was the first one to retire that understood my case. And I called her. She was working now for a very pre prestigious international law firm uh, of counsel. And that's what they do when they are yep. when they have these in inspiring careers like that. They go and they, after they retire, they go and they work up counsel with very prestigious law firms. And she was there. I called her and asked her for help. She couldn't help me directly, but guess what? Her husband worked at the same firm. Mm. So, <laughs> so her husband decided, you know what, this is not right. This is very wrong. I'm going to represent you. And within three months, I had my license. That's three an incredible months. part of the story. Um, that Because that, it, it, it there, there's a part that sort of pulls this all together. You know, when we mm. talk about systemic changes, a lot of times it's somebody making a different decision. Right. Somebody that said, That's oh, right. I can't I can't do it. My hands are tied or like I have no control over that thing. They can make a different decision. That's right. And make that's a different right. choice. And that's what happened here. And I think it, it, it shows that there change is absolutely possible. Every single person absolutely. can make a different choice. You don't always absolutely. have to go along with the, corru the corruption that's within within a system like this one. Absolutely. And, it, and it's important for everyone to know, all the listeners to understand that I believe in the system. I mean, and I want this is important for me to say because of what the system did to me, you know, and and and, and so in saying that I believe in the system, I, I have to qualify that so that they can mm -hmm. understand why I'm saying what I'm saying, because the person that went through, I went through would be very bitter. It would be very, very angry. Um, and I'm not I'm not bitter. I'm not angry. Just like I said earlier, I think being a prosecutor is a very honorable position. Um, I don't think there's any other more honorable position in this country than being a prosecutor. And I believe in the system. And here's the reason why. I was convicted wrongfully by a system, but I was also released by that same system. Mm -hmm. 
And I understood that the difference between me being wrongly prosecuted and, 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 and also being released had nothing to do with the system itself. It had to do with the people running the system. The system is set up to be as perfect as any system in the world could be. That's how our system is set up. That's right. how our founders set it up. But when you get the wrong person, when the wrong person is in place yes. that you entrust to run that system, when he's there, wrong things are going to happen. Absolutely. So it is not the system right. that's broken. It is the people that's running the system. And because I know how the system is supposed to work, right? I believe in it. And I know that I'm a better part of the system as being a, being a licensed attorney. Correct. Isaac Wright Jr., author of the memoir, Marked for Life, but also this executive producer of the TV series for Life. Thank you so much for being here with us today. This is an incredibly important conversation. I want to continue to have it. I always um, want to have as many of these conversations as I possibly can to prevent what happened to you from happening to anyone else ever again. Please stay safe. Thanks for listening to Mornings with Zerlina. Check in for new episodes every weekday.